Welcome to the PetroNerds Podcast with your hosts, Trisha Curtis, CEO of PetroNerds, and Ethan Bellamy. This show combines upstream and midstream expertise in a Rocky Mountain showdown, brought to you by Digital Wildcatters. Welcome to PetroNerds Podcast number 11. It's April 15th, 2021, tax day, coming to you from Denver, Colorado in the middle of a snowstorm. Hello, Trisha Curtis. Hello, Ethan Bellamy. How are you? I'm fantastic. Let's get it going. We're going to talk about IAO demand, U.S. productivity and efficiency, Iran with the nuclear situation and enrichment. We're going to talk about Chinese solar panels, BP, and then we're going to wrap it up with a little more Dakota access. So A lot of Dakota access. To, yeah. You can never have too much Dakota access. It's the gift that keeps on giving for years in the past <laughs> and years into the future. So let's start with IEA oil demand and oil prices. We had $63 in, on WTI and $66 on Brent today. And uh, we had uh, IEA taking oil demand up. We had the drilling productivity report. So let's dive in on the IEA. Yeah. So, you know, I mean, oil prices, we've we've discussed this before. You know, Ethan and I are, are I would say I'm not, it's not like I'm not bullish on oil prices. I just, these $5 swings make me a little nervous. So we were hanging around 60, 59 bucks an hour, you know, we're, we're at 63, 64. So we, we've had a rare, really recent $5 swing. And my, my view is... Buy 55, sell 65, period. Yeah, well, and, and it, it makes, th this whole thing makes sense, but I think the IEA has revised. So International Energy Agency, we talked about this in previous podcasts, they had their last month report, which was that really intense report with those demand, uh, th those are demand projections of where we need to be to hit emissions targets. But their recent report that came out yesterday, their monthly oil report, they show that um, their 2021 oil demand forecast is for 96.7 million barrels per day. So 97 million barrels per day for 2021 means we're only 3 million barrels a day off pre-COVID level from a hundred million day, barrel a day market. And they attribute this with, they have a 230,000 barrel a day increase. Um, and they, you know, they've been cautious and each month they're, they're relatively cautious in saying, you know, about this recovery. And if you remember last month, we cited that they were they, they were using IMF data and IMF trajectories for GDP, saying that basically GDP growth was never going to come back um, to its full pre-COVID levels. And so actually why they're they're changing their outlook and forecast is because things are doing so well in the U.S. So it's not just the where vehicle miles traveled have now reached 2019 levels. Oh, yes, that's great. That's a great data point. Um, and we're seeing, I mean, on, on our product, on product demand, I mean, you know, refinery data isn't, per, hasn't, you know, throughputs aren't perfect yet, but from product demand level, from gasoline demand, we're not yet at pre-COVID levels, but we're getting close. And we've really seen, a, a, I mean, the U.S. is leading the demand recovery for sure. And we are also leading, and that is because we are also leading the vaccination recovery and vaccination efforts. And even with the Johnson & Johnson pause that we just had on the Johnson & Johnson vaccine, it doesn't look like we're taking a real pause on any vaccinations. I think it was like there were 4,000 people in New York City that were supposed to get the Johnson Johnson vaccine the other day. They pressed pause and just said they are going ahead with Moderna or Pfizer. So the administration says and said the other day that they're not, they're just going to keep going. And that one weekend, you know, I got my, I got my shot on Easter weekend on that Saturday. And I, it was the day that, you know, the first day Colorado had opened it up to people under the age of 50. And for, I knew we'd get the data point, but 4 million people got vaccinated over the weekend. So 
those data points are huge because people are going, if you've been out to dinner or you're going out, like you're seeing more and more people out, people are getting comfortable. And we are certainly seeing that, I think, in both economic data and oil demand data in the U.S. And I think increasingly, and I encourage you if you're, you know, a night owl to stay up and watch Bloomberg because you will hear that the U.S. is leading the economic recovery along with China. And that is a, a very interesting story, not dissimilar actually from what happened in the financial crisis as well. Well, there we go. So would you like to move on to U.S. productivity and efficiency? Uh, yes. So anyway, so yeah, demand good. Uh, stock draws are actually good globally, too. So we're, we're seeing, I guess, I mean, a little bit nervous about my projections on oil prices in the near term because th things do look really good. But we have all these barrels sitting on, on the sidelines. So Ethan and I are still both pretty concerned about. Yeah. And, and my view is, look, 75 short term, easily it could happen. But there's so much excess OPEC spare capacity that if you're myopically focused on supply and demand in the U.S. and you don't look at the extra barrels that could come on from OPEC, particularly Saudi, at 8 million barrels per day versus capacity of probably 11. Yep. And that's exactly my point is that I think that too many I, I speak with a lot of folks in the U.S. industry and it just seems like there's a very confident view um, that does seem to be coming from the U.S. that because our supply levels are down and because we are going to face regulatory uncertainty and burdens that this is sort of they're sort of extrapolating this forward that we're definitely going to see higher prices, that we're going to see lack of investment. And, you know, Saudi production in March was eight million barrels a day and change. They have to start adding barrels back like they personally need to. And then all these other OPEC countries need to. And we'll get into this Iran complicated piece in, in shortly. Um, but I think from a U.S. side, just flipping that over and, and talking about the U.S., we're still at 11 million barrels per day. Um, Gulf of Mexico has a lot to, you know, you can add add and take barrels off really quickly with Gulf of Mexico. But this productivity and efficiency, and people know this, that I'm obsessed with frac sand and completions and always have been. But, you know, thinking about this for 2020, obviously we, we, we wouldn't have expected to see barrel, you know, really strong wells come online. I wouldn't, who would have wanted to bring on a really bang up well in 2020 when, when prices suck? So you wouldn't expect to see any productivity gains. But these productivity moves, these efficiency gains, and I think it's this honing in on efficiency that's really important to me because, I was just looking at the average lateral length and it, it's over 10,000 feet in the Midland. It's 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 getting close to 10,000 feet in the Delaware. And those are pretty substantial gains. We were we were sub 8,000 feet, not that like two years ago. So that means that you have operators obviously going past 10,000 feet that folks much longer laterals. And those there are lots of incremental efficiencies and cost efficiencies that come with that. But with this comes like cost issues and stuff. But I think you've had some Twitter conversations and we were talking offline about some of these efficiency gains. And I would like to dive into that a little bit. Yeah. So the best thing that happened to me during the pandemic, and I'm definitely trying to focus on the positive because there were some setbacks for sure, is uh, energy finance Twitter and getting to know actually a lot of people in real life uh, from the Internet. So Internet friends. Anyway, on on Twitter, We've got re really good knowledge that trickles through some of the trolling and some of the, the nonsense that happens. But there's a guy who recently started posting wireline videos uh, from the well site uh, at Tejano Brown. His name is De La Rosa. I want to commend those to everybody's attention. But some of the questions I asked him were about productivity and the technology depreciation juggernaut is alive and well. So out of the woodwork, we saw three or four comments about things that are becoming automated, things that are more efficient, new technology that is basically just decreasing the human capital needed to bring wells online and improving the overall efficiency and time to drill. So that may have accelerated in 2020, but it certainly didn't slow down. Yeah. And I, 
I think why it's really important to think about what you just said and all those little things is because we often, at least I know when I'm in New York or if I'm in London, obviously pre-COVID, but when you're talking to folks, the further you get from the industry, the the knowledge goes away as well. So the actual knowledge of what's happening day to day on the ground, I mean, you just kind of lose it. And particularly when you go abroad, this understanding of, of efficiency gains and like, can you get any more productivity? And I think... At, you know, even New York analysts and stuff were pretty skeptical of like, can we get any more productivity and efficiency out of this? We did. We've like, every time people say we've tapped, you know, we've, we've tapped out on it, we get a little bit more. And these downturns, especially in 20, 2014 through 2016, we saw massive efficiency gains, right? Big changes. And I think, you know, there were some art, there were some points of like, when you just look at the rig count recovery, that on the rig count recovery and the trajectory, we are where we sort of were in 2016 of that. I'm not saying we're going to go back to 400 rigs, nor should we, but in terms of that trajectory. And also, and you can argue on different levels on break even, but I think Boston Consulting Consulting Group had a really good presentation in Riyadh in in February where they were breaking down, you know, the cost changes and that these cost moves were pretty were really significant in the drop in costs. And we haven't seen those come back yet. You know, everybody in the service sector has not just raised their costs all at once. That's probably going to happen later on this year. I think we we will see um, we will see some some of these costs, ha- they have to go up because these and service guys. Tip of the hat to Double Point, who drilled like mad straight through 2020 and uh, and built up production enough to sell themselves to Pioneer. Yeah, and I have a trial. I'm, I'm still struggling with it because we mentioned it in the last podcast, but, you know, that was a $6.4 billion acquisition. I know f- lots of folks on Twitter have had plenty of uh, funny videos and, and things to go with that. It just seems like, so I looked at the production again, and it's, Around 60,000 barrels per day. That's what Inveris's uh, production data for, for double, uh, double point, double eagle, whatever you call them. Double um, point. Double point. Around 60,000 barrels a day production. And it was north of 250-ish horizontal wells. Um, and then you had a slug of old, older verticals. So I, like I said before, I think the location is great in terms of like the buying it. But it's $6.4 billion for... 200, a couple hundred horizontal wells and 64,000 barrels a day production. Like it's just a lot. So that, you know, we used to ramp up wells and hit high IPs and stuff. And, you know, that was when, you know, Noble was buying um, Williams. Like, I mean, that was when we saw those kind of purchases, right? This was, uh, is it William? Yeah. All the purchases we saw in like 2016 when, you know, Yates didn't do it so much, but we did see lots of companies that get purchased and you would look at up these wells and they would in the Delaware be for like four wells, really high IPs. And and, you know, and nothing else. It'd be like four horizontal wells. I'm not saying this is the same, but just ramping up production, you know, there's a reason why they obviously did that because they wanted to get bought out. So I think the market might be a little bit sort of out of, out of whack and out of line. And it could be, um, you know, there's some theories of why we're seeing, you know, four, 39 operators, you know, or 40 operators with a single rig. Um, that's probably where, to an extent, that's probably where you're seeing it, that these private equity and private players are hoping to capitalize on this, this recent, um, you know, flurry to go by these companies. I also think some of these companies are literally just doing it because prices are $60 a barrel and it makes sense to, you know, to be drilling and producing oil and they can, they can make the math work. Um, The efficiency standpoint of like, people always say we don't, we, there's only so much room you can go with it. Not every operator is created equal. They're not all running like EOG. They're not all running like Pioneer. You have a lot of small little companies that could 
easily increase efficiency and easily increase productivity and easily increase output. So when people lump all these guys together, and again, we're, we're really talking about the Permian here and less so other places, but they can, they can still do it as well. I just think the moves and the fact that you have 230 rigs running and these lateral lengths just continue to increase, it, these small moves incrementally just added together make a big difference. And that I think that is what's going to start creating and I think is probably creating tightness in the market of if everybody's doing a little bit better on all these little efficiencies and you're trying to use less people and you're trying to reduce costs, eventually you're going to get to the point where you need a little more people and things are going to be tight. So when you're calling people up and trying to get shit and you're trying to frack a well or do whatever, things are going to be tight because everybody's trying to do more with less. Yeah. Well, one of the phenomena that I've, I've been looking at is the, is the bifurcation of the market between activity by privates and activity by publics. I talked to two different, I talked to a mineral company and a producer today, and they both told me that discipline is part of the new ethos for public companies in the upstream, which I, I don't think I would have been sold on that in any time period before, but they're really trying to be disciplined. And we haven't seen huge rate accelerations like you would have seen in the past with a commodity price run like we've seen in the last uh, six months or so. So what the privates do is really interesting. And we talked about double yep. point and their incredible production growth, which looked nothing like the production from any of the public companies. Yep. So that phenomenon is definitely something to watch. What are the privates doing? And I pay attention to them too, because I think it, if you're a service company, you, and I really, I, I, preach this a lot, but like if you're a service company, you should really be one getting, a, having a really clear understanding of the macro and at least having framing that and understanding how you feel about it and what you think. And you have to really study what's going on in, in these plays because you do have this massive bifurcation. And like, for example, I break through this week, I went through the rig count in detail by county, by operators. And you can just see where there's, where there is bifurcation, the majors and the big independents haven't even brought all their rigs back, but these tiny guys are ramping up and certain counties like I think it's certain counties have recovered really well. Like um, Eddie County has not recovered well. Um, Lee County has recovered. And I'm correcting myself because I'm told I've been saying Lay County forever. It's not Lay County, apparently it's Lee. So I apologize to all those folks in New Mexico and people who think I'm an idiot. It is Lee County. Um, and that they've recovered really well, but that's because EOG just added like four rigs and they're going to town and drilling. And these other counties like Glasscock County, Martin County, Howard County, you're seeing these smaller companies add rigs back. Um, and it's just interesting because they're recovering. So if you're looking at this on a holistic level and you're looking at this by county, you're thinking these guys are recovering, but it's different than it was. The map, the makeup of these operators are very different. And that also means they spend differently. They think about if they're private, I mean, and actually private, like they have private investment dollars. They're not necessarily PE back. They don't got somebody breathing down them. They're throughout their private. They can run things the, the way they want to. And it just means that, you know, activity won't necessarily fall in line exactly the way folks rationally think it should. Um, so it ramped up, I wouldn't say quicker, the, the permit didn't ramp up quicker, but the steady growth in rigs, you know, Ethan and I started recording this podcast in December and we talked about how we've had a steady ramp in rigs since July, you know, and prices were not $60 in July. Um, we were well below 50 and we've, we bottomed in July and we've since been recovering. So that that's the nature of the beast. And it's the nuanced, deep understanding of that, that really, I think that there's where you have value and you can actually make money if you know how to bet on that. Oh, that was so conclusive. So I think that's a natural segue if you'll let me, because yeah. you always have you always have to say the last thing. Okay. No, we uh, Ethan and I have struggled today, so we're on round two of this. So we're uh, we're working on these natural segues. So yes, mm, please, natural uh, segues. Uh, uh, okay, N natural segue. Well, 
Well, I'm 45 years old, which means for the benefit of my Twitter friends, I have 42 years of energy experience. And my entire life, U.S.-Iran relations have been part of the news cycle. So this week uh, we have and and let's just recall in a prior podcast, we discussed the Iran-China bilateral agreement where basically the Chinese are undercutting U.S. foreign policy by buying oil directly from Iran. And now Iranian enrichment is headed north. Yeah. So, um, is it, I am 10 years younger than Ethan. Thank God. Um, he look, he, we look the same age though. So, um, I don't know if that's cause I'm aging well or he's aging extremely well. Um, like or it. I'm aging poorly and I look more of his age, but anyways, uh, so Iran and China, I mean, you're not, you're not wrong. We talked about the, before we, we talked about Iran and China and how, you know, China's taking these barrels from Iran. But I think it's important to just think about in Iran in a global context, because we haven't probably given Iran enough attention in terms of thinking about like the barrel additions that they could have. I mean, obviously, if China's importing a million barrels a day from Iran, we also know that, and we've noted this in previous podcasts, that China's been eking out additional, or I'm sorry, Iran's been eking out additional barrels pre-Biden um, getting elected. And there was an assumption, I think, behind that from Iranian leadership that, that Biden was probably going to be more lax on sanctions. And they were they were just taking, whether or not they thought about that or not, they were just going to go ahead and start increasing barrels. And they really needed to. There's sort of a desperation, I think, in Iran from an economic standpoint and what they've felt from all these sanctions for years that they have to do this. Now, the U.S. has pulled out of that, you know, we had, under Trump, we had pulled out of that JCPOA, um, that, or that agreement. And so, the Biden administration is thinking about re-entering that agreement. So we've had these conversations recently in Vienna, and I think there's some been a lot of back and forth with our with our leadership, with our delegations. But I listen to I typically when I'm working and stuff, I listen to I listen to um, BBC at night and I hear the perspective, you know, you, you get an international perspective. And actually from Iran, it seems very very um, like they're viewing the Biden administration very similar to the Trump administration. They don't see any difference um, to date. And foreign policy has not changed a lot. No. And it. I mean, we've talked about this before, but really hasn't. Like there's no dramatic, you know, there is no we I've I've criticized uh, Biden's and we both criticized Biden's energy policies on this podcast at length. I'll probably continue to do that. But honestly, foreign policy has not we have not seen any dramatic shift. Trump's posi- position on Khashoggi is the same ultimately as Biden's was despite campaign promises. Yes, it's very, you know, it's really hard to not make friends or not to be friends with Saudi Arabia. It's it's a very tricky ball game to play. So, and Iran is squarely in the middle of this, which is which is why it is really complex and I think Biden has a more uh, a little bit more complex. I mean, honestly, Trump kind of teed him up for a sort of better situation and that there's some continuity within Israel and within the Arab countries that we have not had ever, um, basically in decades, because um, actually it was that book, Blood and Oil. Blood and Oil, I was listening to, and they're talking about Mohammed bin Salman. And so we had these Abraham Accords underneath under Trump, and that sort of allowed, you know, kind of a treaty of recognition uh, of peace between Israel and these Arab countries, including Saudi Arabia. And I think it was a recently as a couple decades ago, according to Blood and Oil, that a, a 20, 2012, I believe, that they quoted that 
people or Jews were listed in a textbook in Saudi Arabia as um, as apes, as likening them to apes. And that was as recently as 2012. So this was their example of saying how far, how, how big a deal it is to sort of come to an agreement with Israel because they have not had those relations historically. And I think, you know, thinking about that in context of where Iran fits into this and that Iran is the arch nemesis of, of Saudi Arabia to a large degree, as well as, as well as Israel. And so it gets a little complex here in Iran. You know, we're trying to get back to the JCPOA and we're trying to, and the reason we were trying to do that is so that we can, you know, hopefully they'll control their uranium enrichment. But the problem is they're already not controlling their uranium enrichment. So according to the JCPOA, the original agreement was 3.67% of, of the um, saturation of the uranium enrichment that they were allowed to sort of do. Um, the actual, what they just announced, I think they're at 20% now, and then they announced that they're going to 60%. So, Which is scary because the Israelis full stop will not allow the Iranians to have a nuclear weapon, period. Yeah, yes. They won't. Yes. Um, It'll lead to war. Yeah. And I mean, it's, it's, you know, Israel sees it as a nuclear deterrence. I was, I was fortunate in college to work on, you know, get some reports from an old professor and be able to read them and stuff. And the nuclear deterrence stuff on Israel was fascinating. But yeah, you, Iran, 60% uranium enrichment, that's the goal. I mean, that's why they're doing it. They're trying to, you know, shake the tree, rattle the trees a little bit and get people, you know, um, do some saber rattling, get people and nervous. Their, their position is rational, by the way, because the North Koreans have a lot more clout than they otherwise would without a nuclear weapon. I mean, as a strategic deterrent, it works. It's yeah, so they're use rational. It, use it as a deterrent, and yeah, they, they, so they see it that way, and it's their it's their bargaining chip, and they do. You know, it's really important to point out that that the, so the leadership is really tricky, and so I think the Biden administration is probably a little bit torn because they're wanting to get this this um, joint. You know, the JCPOA is the Joint Comprehensive Plan of Action, which other countries are in, so they're wanting to sort of rejoin this and get back on board and get things. You know, get. Iran basically under control. The problem is, is they're they're already not under control. They're they're increasing their uranium enrichment. They had an attack on their on an actual nuclear facility. They had an attack last weekend, and it was they found out that it was internal. But when I was listening to BBC, the rhetoric that they were saying that they were basically so they blamed Israel for one and said that they definitely did it. And you know maybe they did it, maybe they didn't. I don't actually know. I didn't dive into that. Um, People assume it's Israel, but they claim that Israel doesn't do anything without U.S. U.S. Um, okay and U.S. backing, so they're blaming the U.S. as well. Which is the perception, whether or not it's true, doesn't really matter. Right, and so, and at the end of the day, the Ayatollah is the one that controls everything, and so he has to say yes or no on whether or not they're going to go into these back into this this agreement with everyone. The problem is saying so. We have these conversations going on in Vienna now, um, as there's saying they're increasing their uranium enrichment to 60%. And basically going to 90% means that they're, they will have the capability to, to having a weapon. But so, I guess the question would be, if the Iranians are just going to sell their oil to China, what does it matter? Well, yeah. So you have to look at this in, uh, comprehensively. Look, they're increasing the uranium. They're doing all this. They're selling this oil to China. Um, do they really need to do this agreement? Because the reason, you know, we in Previous times we had leverage because they we, people were thinking months ago that we had leverage because they they were so desperate. They're not so desperate anymore if they're going to sell these barrels to China. The the flip side of it, well, there's two pieces. I mean, it's the the barrel additions that that could come on the market, but also and they're at uh, 2.3 million barrels a day right now. Yeah, 2.3, and I think the Middle East Economic Survey or MES, you know, says they can easily add a couple million barrels per day. The estimates are all over the map, but between one and two million barrels per day. So at least a million, probably two. Right. Yeah. And that's that's 
kind of it that's a very big deal for the Saudi Arabia and for OPEC plus. It's a, it's a huge deal. But the other piece of this is that they have an election coming up in June. And I think this administration here in Washington and, and Biden administration is trying to think, OK, we got to hurry up and do this before June because they could get really hard line and then we will have nothing. So, you know, I don't even know if they, they think they're actually going to do this, but it's kind of worth a shot. But the problem is, is that, you know, if they continue to add barrels with or without an agreement, if we have this nuclear agreement, we're going to reduce the sanctions, which means we do reduce leverage to a degree, and then they're going to add these barrels. And that's going to put the Biden administration not in a great position with the Saudis, because that takes Saudi Arabia was in March was producing eight million barrels a day and change, and they need to start bringing barrels back. That is a, a huge problem, not just for them, but for the whole OPEC plus management. And yeah, we're $64 a barrel. And this is why I don't get that excited about it, because you, we have so much production sitting offline and everybody, everybody's eking, you know, and eager to get these barrels, their barrels back on the market to just recover, you know, have this economic recovery or sense of economic recovery. So this is just a, an ongoing issue that's going to continue to evolve and is very complex. So I don't want to dip too much into your consulting business and, and give away the store too much, but I think that your advice would be, hey, even if you got burned by your $50 oil hedges that you had on, you still maybe want to protect the floor here and don't get irrationally exuberant about the upside oil prices. Yeah, I do. And I think it's very fair to point that out because I... It's really interesting the change of when people talk about hedging. You know, you you heard it in the last earnings call as well. Like they're 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 like, oh, are you hedging? That's you know, are you that's not good. You're hedging, and I thought, oh, oh my gosh, you would have flipped and loved it if they had been hedged, you know, six months ago. But now the prices are up a little bit. You don't want to hedge. You can't. You, you can't have it both ways, folks. It's great to be unhedged when prices are going up. Um, and I think it was it was Diamondback and some others that were like, hey, I know we're going to get shit for being hedged, but, you know, if prices slide, it feels pretty damn comfortable. And it is important. I would absolutely say if you have the chance to hedge some of your, you know, on swaps and things, some of it above 55, absolutely. Because can you make money at those levels? Can you pay people back? Can you continue to do business? It's called, it's about stability and CapEx stability. And yes, you know, operators, have, you know, we've seen this, uh, the majors and the large independents have reduced it to an extent. They still have to protect that. They still have CapEx maintenance. They still have maintenance budgets and hedging, you know, the past couple of years has largely been a part of, you know, protecting that. The reason they got their asses handed to them during, you know, when the COVID price correction was because a lot of them had these three-way collars and they had like a ceiling and a floor and then this subfloor. And I'm not an expert on this, but we had covered it. And it was kind of amazing because companies like Occidental, companies like Dimeback, a lot of folks had these three-way collars and anything with that three-way collar was open. Basically, it gave you a $10 premium to WTI. Well, that is, means crap if you're if WTI is you know backsliding and is minus 37, that $10 premium doesn't As a much. rule, the cost of the insurance equates to the, the benefit if you need the insurance. So knocking out the, the cost of the insurance ultimately proved to be a bad move. And you know, I understand the the goal of of trying to offset some of that insurance cost, but it costs money for a reason. Yeah, you exactly. Lay the risk off. And you just have to. It's it's a balanced approach. I mean, and you know, bigger companies often historically have not had, like Chevron and Exxon have historically not hedged a lot because they're bigger. They have more. They can weather the storm. This is just you know we're you know it's a unique. It's no, every time we have one of these blips in the market, it's changing. Our oil market is constantly evolving and you have to be prepared to like, and you have to be 
risk tolerant, but you also have to understand risks and you have to understand market behavior and realize that this is not an old school oil market. This isn't simply and, supply and, and demand. Talking, and talking to upstream management te teams and, and admittedly, I'm a midstream guy, but I have had some experience in dealing with the upstream. The, the way that I can best assess the management teams and their level of either arrogance or humility is how do they approach hedging? Are they really just oil traders in disguise who are gambling with the good firm's money and their hedging policy is very erratic and market driven? Or do they have a very algorithmic measured approach of, hey, I could be wrong. You know, here are the tolerances the con as if you've seen uh, confidence intervals on oil based on uh, futures and options pricing, it's big enough to drive a truck through. It doesn't yep. really tell you much. So. You know, do you have a very mathematical, thoughtful quarterly or monthly approach to this or are you just gambling? You know, and that tells me a lot about what a management team is like. Did you think that they? because in my I mean, did you see that they had very thoughtful approaches? Many of them? Uh, well, I don't want to name names, but some do, some don't. Because <laughs> we had a product, you know, and I, I'm, I'm looking to reboot it. But, you know, honestly, People don't like to pay for data, but we did have a product called Hedgeware and we had, you know, covered hedges. And I can tell you when you get into the weeds and you study that and then you, you know, you start just talking to folks in the industry. It was kind of clear to me that in some places and this wasn't public, you know, I would talk to private companies, but I would realize, you know, I would tell them, hey, you know, we're looking at these hedges and we have all this information. You could see what strategies work when you put all the hedges together for all these operators and you make them apples to apples and you actually say, like, what's the impact on their revenue? You can actually see which which heading strategy at which price levels worked. Um, and it was fascinating to sort of see it. But I would I was here from there'd be like one young man um, and no offense, I'm sure there are women, but it was I would often meet one kind of young man my age and, and they'd be like, well, I, I know what I'm doing. And I thought, basically there's one dude that's doing all your hedging and it's like a 31 year old dude. Like this is, that's not. And thinks he knows everything. Exactly. And, and, and I, I was that dude one time. So no offense to 31 year old dudes, but I was an arrogant, I've seen it all. And then just got punched in the face. Yeah. And yeah. then you realize, Hey, COVID happens, you know, yeah. Halloween massacre 2014 happens. I yeah. mean, some of these things, you know, whether they're black swans, gray rhinos, whatever you want to call them, it happens. And you should have a risk policy in place for a car accident. Yeah. And, and I'm not literally, I don't think Ethan nor I are saying that I think prices are going to crash by any means. And I think there's a, as we've talked about in previous podcasts, there's a very strong argument to be made that sort of $50 is, is this floor. And, and beyond that, it's probably 40, you know, major corrections. But the point is, is that it is kind of fascinating to think about how we've had these behavioral shifts and I am hearing it and feeling it in the industry. This like, you know, yes, the market is sort of subdued and how people are spending money. But at the same time, people are like very, very confident prices are going up. And that is just kind of, you know, when you're that sure of something, you should be asking people and making sure that you're you're not having confirmation bias and double checking that you're you know, you're at least exposing yourself. to. Well, anytime the answer is that we get into um, cognitive debilitating human behavior, then I think we're on the right track. Yeah. So maybe we'll stop there on Iran and move on to. Yeah, we, we diverged and talked about hedging into the US. But and that's fine. We do that sometimes. Maybe we should move on now to Chinese solar panels. The really good article that was in Bloomberg. Yes. And you always have to say something about BP. So we'll just jump in on BP too. Well, yeah, we put these, we put these two together. So Bloomberg actually did some, I, I tell Ethan that I, he knows, cause I'm always sending him, you know, articles and stuff, but, uh, Bloomberg, I rip on Bloomberg quite At a bit. Midnight. Too. 
At midnight, yeah. Uh, Bloomberg does some, well, the market is, all the information in the market, I'm sorry, if you if you turn on Bloomberg at 10 o'clock at night, like that's how you know what's going on in Asia and that's how you know what's actually happening within the with the oil market. By the time I you turn on the news at nine o'clock in the morning and it's literally just US politics um, that goes on. So Bloomberg actually put out a couple good articles this week that were really, they're really telling in terms of how we think about um, you know, the energy transition and, and where things are going in this focus on on emissions and the fact that, you know, Bloomberg is covering this and in this way, um, whether or not they whatever their actual opinion on it is interesting because this information is coming out. And this was on so Chinese solar panels. And we've talked about this previously. We've talked about, you know, how power in China is 65 percent coal, according to BP data from 2019. I'm sure it's a little more now, actually. But 65 percent of all power in, in China is, is coal. And mo we're buying most most, most of the solar, most of the wind, most of the batteries are all coming from China for the globe. And that's largely battery, solar and wind, largely your main components to the energy transition. Yes, there's some other things, but those are basically it, right? And so the demand for those has gone up considerably. So of course, given that demand's gone up considerably, there's a little more thinking and, you know, people are, are examining the supply chain. Exactly. It's examining the supply chain. And not just because obviously we are, you know, lots of stuff is going on. If you turn on the market, all you're going to hear about is the chip sector and the fact that we have a lack of semiconductor chips. And that's huge. Um, but in part of that, it's also like being exposed on copper and what's driving these demand and, and where we're exposed and how we can control the supply chain. So I think some of this this is coming back to this uh what's being produced in China. And this article is called Secrecy and Abuse Claims Haunt China's Solar Factories in Xinjiang. It's, I think I'm saying it, Xinjiang or Xin, Xin, Xinjiang. Am I saying this right? We'll have to get Yen to land here. Will. But yeah, I will have to get um, X-I-N-J-I-A-N-J-G in case you're trying to Google it. Anyway, so this is the province that has had a lot of um, this, this province that had a lot of publicity, probably not by name, but it's the province you'd be familiar with if you followed the humanitarian rights atrocities and, and claims and issues with the Uyghur Muslims within China, um, not just for like for potential concentration camps and, and all kinds of issues with within um, the re-education um, and taking ch children from their parents and all kinds of stuff that's going and on. And they use the word re-education camp in this article, right? Yeah. So that's, you know, we'll <sighs> get, it's so saying, but there's Thanks. a lot of, there's a lot of things going on on here. And I, I wrote my dissertation on, on Chinese national oil companies. And I remember all this stuff of like looking at Sudan and, um, and all the kind of human rights and issues and stuff there. And it, this is not, it's not the same obviously, but it's, it's very familiar. So, the I believe it's on the whole. Let me find it. There we go. It is. So they check with these these camps um, or not camps, but they label them as two things. Um, they put a map here in this article and they show you where the uh, OK, it's, it's suspected reeducation camp. So if you're following the Uyghur Muslim issue um, and lots of folks, you can listen to the China Power podcast. You can listen to other China podcast within from CSIS that do there's some really great episodes that cover this stuff pretty well and can give you an understanding of, of what's happening and and some of the human rights violations and and things that the UN has accused them of um, China obviously has said you know they basically try to not talk about this and they have just not put a lot of color on it so Bloomberg I was watching it the other night and they sent people over there. So this reminded me very, it sounded very similar to like when, when BBC could go to, you know, when they'd go to North Korea or something and everybody's following them and there are guards everywhere and they're, they're given this 
perspective. This doesn't happen. I mean, China is more open than obviously North Korea, but this was kind of a North Korea situation. And so they went to this province and they were met there with an armed guard. And basically they were told from all the, there's four large solar manufacturing facilities there. And they were, they were not allowed to speak with the people at, that are working there. And the reason is because a lot of those people are believed to be, they are, um, that's forced labor. So they're people that were brought in and, and obviously are, are doing forced labor, so they can't talk to them. So they call these though, they, they have a map of the polysilicon factories in, in Xinjiang. And they say four of the world's biggest producers are based in this region. And then they put a map of the suspected re-education camps and the suspected detention facilities. The fact that we call them even suspected is kind of BS. Um, you know, I think Bloomberg should clarify that, yes, while some of these might be suspected, and by the way, there are a lot of dots on here, which is really concerning. Um, so the, these are suspected camps, which there's tons of these, the, you know, they're probably seeing real um, concentration camps and things in this province, which is that's why it's really, really serious, because 50 percent of the world's solar panels are coming from this province. And so this article actually does a great job in explaining that even if you were to get other solar panels from China, which 80 percent of the solar panels are coming from China, even if you were to get other ones, it's very hard to make certain that they're not coming from that province. And even I don't know how that's OK if it's like oh, well, in that province, we have humanitarian rights abuses, but in this province, we don't. It's the same country. You're still, you know, doing that to those people. So I think that the whole thing of, of the fact that they have this large of a dominance on the solar manufacturing panel sector is a huge, huge problem. And um, it's, I mean, it's just, it it complicates the hell out of, of the ramp up of, of these buying. And they also mentioned here, the costs have gone up considerably. And so labor has obviously, you know, the, the cost of all stuff has gone up considerably. So it makes sense that China, you know, would be manufacturing a vast majority of solar panels with forced labor very cheaply. Well, I would like to ask people if they are aware of the potential labor that went into the solar panel that are on their house. And I'm betting oh, there's a lot of see no evil, hear no evil going on out there. You know, it's a sad situation. It, it is sad. And this this article doesn't sort of it doesn't kind of paint lip service. Obviously, it, it, it explains this stuff. And also, so it's they t all this is powered by coal. 100% of these solar panels are manufactured by coal. So in addition to the human rights things, but and I'll get to that in a second because it was interesting how Bloomberg did talk about it when they talked about this. Um, so the polysilicon, they say, quote, factories use harsh chemicals and intense heat to refine metallic silicon from 99% pure to 99.999, that's four nine, sorry, uh, to make a better conductor for electrons. So they're using really intense heat and harsh chemicals. Anything harsh to the environment from a refining kind of process is typically done in China because they don't have those environmental standards and they can do this. This is why we see them, you know, controlling the vast majority of this type of stuff. But that's all produced from coal. So they have four of the biggest coal fired power plants and some of the dirtiest ones in this region as well, powering all this stuff. Um, so in addition to being dirty, which everybody is, is you know, I, this issue to me is that, you know, you really have to start weighing CO2 emissions against humanitarian issues. And this is where the stuff kind of gets into the rub of that one, manufacturing these and the increase in manufacturing, the increase in demand is actually increasing CO2 emissions. Um, but when Bloomberg was asked, you know, when they're talking about this the other night, when they first debuted this article, they said, you know, this is a problem because, well, on the one hand, we have to weigh climate change concerns, but on the, you know, there's humanitarian issues, but, you know, we do have climate change concerns. And I thought, you know, the fact that you say them together like that, it's really concerning. And it's something that like, these are two, you know, like, 
just because you have, we may have to find another solution. You know, it's hard, but you know, you can't just say, well, climate change is so bad that we. And just, and just to be clear, we could do all this in the United States. There would just not be the labor arbitrage of doing it in China. Right. right? So and you can't also. So it'd be like saying, you know, the ramp up in demand, you know, for these these solar panels is going up. Right. So the there was another article in the Financial Times that was talking about their, you know, China, China struggling to rein in steel production and, and to rein in emissions because they're increasing this. So they're increasing manufacturing solar panels of steel of everything because of the demand and also because they're trying to support their economy. But if this is about CO2 emissions, which are definitely not, which are increasing because China's producing this stuff, you know, maybe there's a way, you know, if it's really the impetus is climate change and we have to work on this in these developed countries who are buying this from the developed world who aren't actually using this themselves, then maybe it's not solar. Maybe it needs to be, we need to find what, maybe it's more windmills. I don't know what it is exactly, but it's something that, you know, maybe you have to pivot a little if almost all the solar panels being manufactured from this region, there may need to be a pivot from that, at least in the short term, until you can find a more viable supply chain. And even though this is called the Petro Nerds podcast, I think we should make it clear that neither one of us are anti-renewable. I actually think that they have the the right place and time. Uh, I just want to see real cost benefit analysis. I don't, I don't want just marketing. It's only benefit, benefit, benefit. Are you sacrificing cost and reliability, for example, for the sake of lower emissions? And is that a true kind of calculus that we want or just algebra or arithmetic, or is that, um, is it all marketing in service of, of some, some goal that's really sacrificing in this case, potentially human lives for, you know, some benefit that will accrue 20 years from now. Um, if I'm in that jail in Western China, I care about today, not necessarily 20 years from now. Yeah, and I, I think it's a more, you know, I feel comfortable speaking about this because, you know, I, I'm not I'm not biased on this. And if I was going to advise people on investing, the way I'm looking at this is that you look at everything. So you have to look at all this stuff together. And what truthfully, if you're investing in something, what's going to make money, what's not? And, you know, solar and wind, yes, they have the backing of governments behind them right now, but it has largely been subsidized. And the margins on these solar and wind in particular, the margins are very thin. Doesn't mean the costs haven't come down. The reason costs have come down so much is because China has flooded the market. And it looks to me when you're reading these articles that costs are not going to continue to fall or they're probably going to actually rise because the demand is going up and these comp the prices and the components of the stuff is going up. Add into that the fact that you have all these human rights issues and the fact that the, you know, if you put a life cycle footprint on CO2 emissions, it's probably really damn high on these solar panels that you, the actual, I come back to this, if this is fighting, if, you know, if you're really coming at it from an emissions standpoint, all these things look like they're actually increasing emissions, not decreasing emissions. And so, and from a lot of the rhetoric that in the academic literature and everything I've listened to on the energy transition podcast and everything, it's about the rapid, it's about decreasing emissions now, um, not in the future. And yet, if we're pushing China to go mine all this stuff and go, you know, use this all from coal fire power plant and demand it now, we're probably increasing the emissions in the short term, not decreasing them. And the way to decrease them would be really to be pushing as much gas as possible into Asia to decrease as much coal as you can immediately, and then work on getting these renewables into the grid to have that immediate reduction. And that's where I, 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 I think it's it's really tricky with it, this whole emissions battle. And Bloomberg had a last night. I think <laughs> I was working out, and they've got this. They put their feed on you know on the screen below, and it's like they I had to laugh because they were like. 
China's playing whack-a-mole with emissions or it's it's like a game of whack-a-mole because they're trying to reduce emissions here and there. And, you know, I do call BS on where whether or not China is actually trying to reduce emissions. I certainly think that they have tried to move pollution from one from one province to another. You know, it actually works out great that they can take highly polluting, you know, they can take these coal plants and put them in Xinjiang. And because they're literally, this is where they have the intern, you know, these potentially concentration camps. So it doesn't matter if they're polluting coal. They're not in Beijing, you know, where it's polluting. And it is, it's, you know, if you look at some of this, the pollution is, is really bad there. So it's, they're moving stuff around. They're not decreasing the actual stuff because they have to produce. I mean, last year they were trying to recover from the, from the COVID economic cycle. So while they were trying to get the country, you know, more to a domestic purchasing and producing less steel and everything, they couldn't. So they've increased steel production and they have increased emissions from that. We saw that in the IEA report that we talked about on the last podcast of literally steel production increase, emissions increase. China was the only country to increase emission or major country to increase emissions last year during COVID when everybody else declined because of all this. So this this piece about emissions is just really, really complex and is ultimately, I think, at the core of, of why everyone's trying to do this. So when the numbers, and I'm a numbers type of person, if the numbers don't align, then you got to tell me why we're doing it. And you want to mention BP before we get to our last topic? Yes, yes, absolutely. So it, the BP folds into this perfectly because we've mentioned them in terms of um, in their very lengthy earnings call that they had in Q4, which was actually, um, I'm real, I'm looking forward to their Q1 too. But they're, so Bloomberg had another article, which was very good in exposing, um, and not exposing, but I mean, BP has sold off a lot of assets, right? So part of the reason they have been selling off assets um, and they're, they're calling their hydrocarbons resilient hydrocarbons, and then they're selling off, you know, yeah, we, we talked about it before too. And they're, they're selling off assets to first, you know, pay off debt and just um, make the company stronger, right? And, and then they're spending money on renewables and everything. But part of this, so the first benefit to sell off assets is to get the money in too, then it's it's reducing their CO2 footprint so they can work to become a, a net zero company. So they sold off their Alaskan assets to Hillcorp for over $5 billion. And Bloomberg just, uh, the, I point this out because the fact that Bloomberg is covering this and explaining it this way is something that means that this is, people are paying attention to this, right? That it's not just, you know, Ethan and I talking on the Petronerds podcast about how oil companies are selling assets, but it's not going to reduce emissions. So BP has sold out these assets saying they're going to reduce their emissions, but they sold them to Hillcorp. So does it actually reduce emissions? No. And that's sort of this whole article that you can actually look it up and you can listen to it as well is that Hillcorp doesn't have actually the same standards that BP does, and they most likely those emissions will increase, not decrease. And so you have to think about it from an investment standpoint and an ESG standpoint. And um, Bloomberg also had a little blip on this when they were talking. They were saying, well, market investors are really happy with themselves because they've forced these companies to divest, you know, and they've, they've moved the needle on BP and Shell to divest these assets, and therefore they're becoming greener and cleaner. And I'm, I mean, that's you got. That's where you got to start calling BS on them as ESG funds and the fact that there is no regulation and stuff behind. There's no metric to hit or anything because if you're not actually redu- if those somebody else is buying those assets and producing that oil and doing it a worse standard, then actually Bloomberg was saying that you might be better off with big oil running the assets over these small companies. And that's kind of a fascinating reality to start admitting. Well, it's always the second and third order consequences that get you right. Yeah. And I just, I, I think it's a, it, it, this is, will continue to evolve, but this, this is where it folds into the, the solar panel manufacturing and everything is that, you know, 
you're going to produce this crude oil. You know, this, these assets are being sold off. If you follow what's going on in the Middle East, I mean, Saudi Aramco sold off their estate, a portion of that, their pipeline stake for over $12 billion. And I there mean, was lots of private equity interest there. Lots of private, massive. Every, everybody was interested in that. And so you kind of have this bifurcated world where people are very interested in, you know, interested in, in solar and wind and divesting in hydrogen and green technology and electric vehicles. And everybody's going crazy for it. But at the same time, you know, if BP wants to sell an asset, it gets purchased, you know, and they're making money from it. So clearly folks know that, you know, we are, con and obviously IEA is saying we're at 97, we're going to be at 97 million barrels a day of crude oil demand. You know, it's just, it's not going away overnight and there are consequences for that and how we invest, you know, and how we, we move money around. And, and that's, you know, more about, I'm not about picking and choosing winners and losers. I'm just thinking this is very, very complex. And when you have a lot of political momentum on this to reduce emissions and go pick uh, technologies and stuff or go implement it super fast, you can have consequences for that. And one of those consequences could be that you increase emissions, not reduce them. Okay. So truth and consequences. Let's move on to our Chuck Yates portion of the, of the podcast, which is conspiracy time. <laughs> and uh, this is a good one around Dakota access and how this is playing out. So Trisha has a really good hypothesis here, which uh, bears some consideration in terms of how things might play out when Judge Bosberg is going to rule on April 19th for, you know, whether basically whether Dakota Access should shut down while the Army Corps of Engineers is working up an environmental impact statement, which they expect to have in 2022. The implications are for the balance of the year, you could see roughly half a million barrels a day of export capacity go down, which would widen differentials in North Dakota and the Bakken and hurt producers. It would benefit some other upstream companies like our friend uh, Kevin Kaiser over at True Companies and uh, my friend Matt Sheehy over at Tallgrass. They would certainly benefit. That could happen. We'll see. Uh, but let's get to your to your to the theory. Yeah. So you've teed this up really well. Um, but I love and I I have been I love talking about Dakota Access and Keystone and just how pipelines work. So just to remind our listeners, um, and I Ethan did tee that up really well because he's basically explained that's where the market is thinking that hey this pipeline's going to keep running and that's that's where the the bets are right now. Dakota Access pipeline runs from North Dakota to Potoka, Illinois, down to and then this that trunk line from. Uh, Potoka, Illinois, down to Nettleland, Texas, and then into the Gulf Coast. So the reason why it's a big deal is because it's a 570,000 barrel a day crude oil pipeline. It is probably, you know, from best estimates, that's probably running full right now because you're getting the best, best prices in the Gulf. All those barrels are running there. North Dakota is producing 1.1 million barrels per day of crude oil, roughly a little over a million barrels per day. Wilson Basin as a whole is producing a little more. So most of half of that crude is going down to the Gulf Coast. So nameplate capacity, you have other pipes. You you have two companies that goes into Wyoming that you mentioned, um, and you have uh, you you have several other systems and Bridges Line that goes into the Midwest that technically name nameplate capacity you have over 800,000 barrels a day. Um, but there are market consequences for this. Now, this hearing that happened, and I was very fortunate to be able to actually listen to the actual hearing. It was the first one I, I was able to listen to as opposed to just read the articles afterward. And, you know, the biggest takeaway was that, you know, you probably saw the articles that Army Corps of Engineers punted. And boy, did they punt. Um, and they probably had been punting for a while. I just was not privy to hearing these, actually listening to the hearing. The hearing was about half an hour long. I put out a little video on, on LinkedIn and Twitter on it. But 
it was amazing because you had the Army Corps of Engineers, you had Dakota Access, you had Judge Bosberg, and you had the Standing Rock Sioux Tribe and other tribes kind of echoing in, but largely them. And so it's a, you know, and quite, a, you know, an update on all this. And and Judge Bosberg, for my opinion, really was not pleased with, a, he didn't seem pleased with the Army Corps of Engineers punting on this because the, they awkwardly kind of were like, yeah, we're, yeah, we're basically not making a decision, you know. So the Army Corps of Engineers is saying they're not essentially going to make a decision on this when they could have. So they could have, you know, they. And the, and the bear case from the street was the Biden administration is anti-oil and gas. They'll lean on the Army Corps and get the Army Corps to shut it to recommend shutting it down. Right. And I, I think right. so that's the because basically in February 9th, they were supposed to come out and say something. Right. They were supposed to have a have a word or something. And that didn't happen because they said right. we're bringing in a couple new people. It wasn't clear whether those like a Biden appointees. Were you swapping out people? And I don't think it's a, a completely biased organization or anything. But like you assume that they're coming in from the administration. So they may have a say. And it's this is not it, it's fact that the Biden and Harris administration does not is not in the canceled Keystone XL. They're not in fans of of uh, major oil pipelines. So it is uh, open to debate and talking about this that they may want to not have this pipeline running. But it's a big, it's a very big difference between not approving Keystone XL's permit or canceling that permit and actually emptying a crude oil pipeline, which is what we're talking about today because this this pipeline is running full. All right. So get to the conspiracy. So hold on. Hold, well, so <laughs> Army Corps of Engineers. Basically, they have an environmental impact statement or they say that they're going to have their environmental impact statement ready March 2022, but they have an environment. They did the environmental assessment. So the EA assessment. So they kind of say they've done everything right. The conspiracy theory, and I don't really think it's con conspiracy theory. I just think that so you have no legal precedent to empty a crude oil pipeline to date. Really, we that so that's partly why it has not been emptied, because the judge had ordered, Judge Boswick had ordered, you know, put this injunction that you, uh, from my understanding of that, Dakota access was ruled against, but we didn't actually do anything on it because we have no legal precedent to do it. He sort of got his hand slapped and the pipeline stayed running and Dakota access made the case. And so this is sort of an, an the Army Corps of Engineers, um, basically, I guess they're saying now that they don't have, you know, now the pipeline is running without the permit. So the Standing Rock Sioux Tribe is, is pleading to Judge Boesberg and saying, hey, we won. We assumed that the administration was going to end. This would be over when this this administration got elected. That was really interesting to hear that they made that very clear. And they probably said that before. I just wasn't aware of that. But they made it very clear within the hearing that they assumed this pipeline was going to be emptied with this administration. The um, friends in the White House, this is what would happen. So that that didn't happen. And Judge Boesberg and the San York Sioux tribe seemed very annoyed at Dakota Access and Army Corps of Engineers during the, the hearing. And so he didn't, you know, they ruled against the pipeline. It didn't happen. Judge Boebert kind of got his hand slapped and now we're sort of where we're at. And Army Corps of Engineers should have made it in. I think the judges may be hoping they were going to make the decision, but they're not. And they're saying, OK, well, we'll have the environmental impact statement ready on on the on March of 2022. And I the market read it, as you explained, the market read it. That's really positive, right? That that. that the Biden administration is not going to go after line three. They're not going to go after line five for Enbridge. And these pipelines are protected. And I kind of read it a little bit differently that you because you didn't have the legal precedent, you should be going through the courts to get the legal precedent. And this would be to me, looks like it, it may not work. They may not get it. They may not get the ruling in their favor. But if they get it and it sticks, then you've got it, which means that's way more damning for line five and line three and actually any pipeline existing that's full to empty a pipeline. And 
legal precedent beyond that to just not get one approved. So they were. So the idea is they were playing a more nuanced game, which is don't lean on the Army Corps. Let it go to Bozberg on the 19th. Let him shut it down. They, you then have a legal precedent. You can parlay into the other pipelines for, hey, yeah, we can shut this down if there's if there's a question about the easement or. Right. And yeah. it's so it's it's that, you know, because everybody the whole beginning of this of like, well, how come it hasn't been emptied? Is that because there really is no legal precedent? So how you would think it wouldn't be about legal precedent is a little bit beyond me because the the Army Corps of Engineers is one entity and and they they could do something. But, you know, that could also be a you could you could continue to see where there would be multiple appeals on that as there as there have been. The other piece of this is that, you know, we know if you if you want to Google this and look it up, but look at the Financial Times, look at the, um, I think probably the Washington Post, but definitely the Wall Street Journal has done some pretty good coverage of the amount of legal, uh, you know, the armed legal entities within Washington, D.C. that the Biden administration has put together. They're putting massive powerhouses together of lawyers because they know that the executive orders that they put in are going to face legal combat. And um, as every president who probably does, uh, and I'm sure Trump did this as well, that when you're doing executive orders, they're going to get you know, they're going to end up in court to some degree, and then you're going to have to have good lawyers to, to actually implement and fight this. We should, and for, for folks who don't concentrate on D.C., we should also put this whole conversation in context of today, the big socialized point from the Democrats is that they want to expand the Supreme Court to 13 justices from nine. Right. So it's this, a full frontal assault in D.C. It's a big deal. And, and so under so under Trump, um, it wasn't it. I mean, it was no secret that Trump put in a lot of judges, you know, under Trump and even judges that some of that he didn't like. But there was a big movement basically underneath his administration and people that were in favor of him that to put place in judges that viewed that read the Constitution as originalists or, you know, as as, as it was, as opposed to having a, a more wider, uh, liberal uh, and more modern interpretation of the Constitution. So there was a big push to do that. And so there's a lot of judges in in place now that Trump had put in that read it sort of that way. And that's why. So when you read it, read about this stuff, there's a reason why they're amassing sort of all these lawyers in D.C. to work on this. And it just makes sense to me that if you're amassing all these lawyers and you're taking this very legal approach and you're trying to impact the court system, it makes sense to me that if you want to have any flexibility on pipes in the future that you would want this to go through the legal system and you would want to have legal precedent. And that makes me concerned that the market could be reading this a little wrong because Bozberg is probably going to rule. It, it sounds to me like he's going to rule against this unless, you know, Dakota Access comes up with something very earth shattering. I'm not sure what they're going to come up with because the, the Standing Rock Sioux Tribe is basically saying the economic benefits of keeping the pipeline running do not outweigh the harm of what could happen if there's a potential spill. And so that's what I, it seems to me. That's a simple way of saying how Bozberg would rule on this. Now, those economic benefits are pretty significant, but material yeah. for, for producers and for the owners of the pipeline. Yeah. So those are significant. But if you're there's lots of ways to legally construct that to say, mm -hmm. you know, a spill would be worse, et cetera. So that's where this sort of sits. And I think that the, you know, Dakota Access had asked for more time. Bozberg did not seem very pleased with that. Um, so there was back and forth of I need a couple of weeks and he gave him 10 days. Um, so they basically will come back on April 19th with a a. a a dense or a, a updated market um, presentation, I guess, or information explaining, you know, oil prices have obviously changed. And he, they had cited that, you know, before in November when they did this, that they didn't vaccines were not even available so that the market has changed. So we'll see what comes comes up with that on April 19th. But it was just 
Um, it was super fascinating to listen to. I, I thought it read very, very poorly for Dakota Access, which is interesting that people um, kind of read it a little bit differently. But it, I thought if Joe Boesberg had the ability to rule on it that day, he would have absolutely ruled against the pipeline. Well, we're going to know very soon. And I should also point out that neither of us are attorneys. So if yeah. any lawyers are listening to this and yelling into their headset that that's not the way precedent works or you've botched this or that. You're we, love, we love to hear from you. Absolutely. I've been wrong before. I'll be wrong again. And I know she's been wrong. So, um, yeah, and I'm happy <laughs> to admit it. I don't mind. I don't mind admitting I'm wrong. But I, I think that the implications for this pipeline and the, the, the that legal precedent is huge. But the implications for even if it was empty to short term, I mean, and Justin Crink said with the North Dakota Pipeline Authority had done a, a thing with UBS and you had um, you saw that thing with UBS and his his estimates were. A three to five dollar differential after things had sort of worked through the wash. A three to five more like five to eight in the yeah. near term. And I think I honestly think that it would be a bigger, much bigger blowout because look, when when pipeline differentials blow out, they blow out before. And I always say this when people think about why WTI went negative and everything. When pipeline differentials blow out, they blow out before the pipe. You know, the differentials blow out before the pipeline gets full. It's anticipation of it. Mm-hmm. So. If you know this pipeline is going to get emptied, your differentials are going to go really wide and crazy. And then they'll come back in and narrow to back to reality because we do have other pipelines. It's just not going to be the most perfect market and you're not going to be able to get it to the Gulf Coast via pipe that quickly. You're going to have to send it via rail. So I think there will be a blowout um, and the market, if, if you're not, we've had wonky differentials that are a little higher probably than they should be. But we also have a, the slight benefit is that with the reduction in production in Colorado, and I mean, we're going to have to spend a podcast on that at some point soon because we have not done the devastation to the Colorado oil and gas industry justice. Um, but Colorado production is going to continue to decline. Wyoming production is declining with all the federal um, regulation, you know, the reduction in permitting and everything and just federal lands. So that opens up some capacity for true companies and the systems to take that crude into Wyoming. But it means that Guernsey is going to get slammed with a crap ton of crude. The Midwest would end up with a ton of crude. So you're so for people listening that don't know where Guernsey, Guernsey is, is, where in, is that? <laughs> Guernsey is in um, is in Southwest Wyoming. So you're going to end up with a bunch of crude. You're going to end up with a bunch of crude in Wyoming. Then it has to go through Colorado. And then it has to get down to the Gulf Coast. And you're going to end up with a bunch of crude in the Midwest. And so your refineries and we've had refineries as we've we've mentioned it previously on some podcasts. But refineries shut down. Holly Frontier shutting down in Cheyenne. So incremental refinery closures in the Rockies mean that you're not going to be able to place that, you know, these are 10,000, 20,000, 30,000 barrels a day, but that starts adding up. So all these things matter when say, you know, the summer comes around and, and it, we always see reductions in production in North Dakota in the winter. So um, it makes sense that when the summer months come on, you know, we will see a bump. If prices stay where they're at, we're going to see a bump in that rig count. And they're going to, you know, I don't know if production would rise rapidly, but it's not going to decline um, by any means. So, you're going to have to, you have to move that around. And it, these differentials just matter. It matters a little less than if we were, you know, pre COVID and we were going to ramp up. Um, but the point is it's, it's going to have market implications and it's, we're going to have to watch it closely. All right. Well, we will have episode 11 or excuse me, episode 12 on Saturday. And then episode 13 will be after the 19th, I think. And we will come back and say, Hey, what happened on Dapple next Absolutely. one? We're gonna, well, hopefully I'll be able to listen to it. And if not, I'll chase up, I'll chase it up with the, with the guys in North Dakota, but um, it's a, a really important story to watch. And I don't think I'm completely crazy with this legal precedent thing. I think it's a, it's, it's something that people should be thinking about because the market's taking it market's taking this kind of as a pass and that it's the army corps is in favor of all this stuff never a dull moment and uh i am pleased that i managed to get through this podcast without being hit or bit by axel 
Life is good. I'm going to go have a nice date with my girlfriend. I wish everyone a great back half of April. May you trade well. Thank you for your time, Trisha. It's Absolutely. been fun as yep. always. Um, again, I don't think of, I am the CEO of Petrons, Ethan Bellamy. We're your host for this podcast, and it's April 15th. And we thank you very much for listening. Bye.